have some more uh, youth leaders coming on, if you'd like. Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I can see Hamish doing a live update on the screen. So soon you'll uh, know my name. Uh, yes, so I'm a ministry leader for uh, youth, and it would be super encouraging to have uh, some more leaders join us as more year sixes, year sixes uh, come in to uh, join us on Friday nights. So if that's on your heart, then chat to me about it. Chat to one of the youth leaders around. There's quite a few of us at 6.30, um, and we can pray about that with you. Uh, yes, I'll be reading from Matthew 12, verse 15 to 21, and then we'll be skipping to verse 46 to 50. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He is my, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Let me skip down. Um, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Kayla, before you go, what do you want the youth leaders on a Friday night, what do you want them to do uh, if they were going to volunteer? Okay, if you are going to volunteer, uh, you can come chat to me. Oh, oh. Thank this you. is my bucket. Oh. Um, so you can come chat to me or Sam Lowe or our new temporary directors um, or interim directors, Joe or Scott Carpenter. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. we will get you an application and you can sign up. There's, there's an application and then an interview, and then you'll observe for a few weeks. You need to have a blue card as well um, before you start observing. And then once that's all done, you and you are wanting to become a youth leader, then we welcome you in. So what, what time do they turn up and what time do they finish on Friday night? On Friday nights, we have a meeting at 6.30, and then the night starts at 6.45 and finishes at 9. And then there's a meeting afterwards from 9.15 till... Midnight. We, yeah, midnight. <laughs> yeah, we, we pack up uh, on Saturday, so... <laughs> uh, no, we try to wrap up the meetings afterwards as sure. quickly as we can. Very good. So, Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for doing the reading. If you've got your Bible with you, either uh, a real Bible or you've got an electronic one... Um, you can see from Matthew chapter 12 that what I have done is that we started going through Matthew 12 last week and we got down to around about verse 14 um, and I was supposed to go, I think, to 21. So we stopped at 14 last week and so I've come back tonight to finish off the 15 to 21 bit and then there's a whole section on Jesus and Beelzebub and the sign of Jonah and Jesus being accused of being demonised and his response to all of that. So I've put those together and we'll do that next week and we'll do the last paragraph 
tonight. That'll then bring us to the conclusion of Matthew 12, which we'll then push the pause button and we'll start this new series on fruitfulness on the front line. Um, and then when that's finished, then we'll come back and uh, probably and pick up Matthew 13 and just continue to work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And then again, pause at some point and head off in another direction, another tangent and so on. Um, did I say we're having communion at the end of this service? I forgot to tell you, particularly those at home, you might like to get some elements ready for that um, when we come to the end of our service. So this is Jesus and his family or his new family um, is what we're looking at in a moment. Uh, let me just pray again and then I'd like to do a review. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for your word and I ask that your Holy Spirit might take these words, your word, and you might enlighten us, teach us, show us truth in order that we can respond to it, that we could submit and align ourselves with who you are and what you desire for us and for all people. So Lord, here we are listening and asking for you to nurture us and to nourish us, we pray by your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we spoke about how Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath. Tonight we're going to talk about um, how he is the servant of Yahweh, a significant title. Verse 14 of Matthew 12 says, But the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. Remember the story? It was the Sabbath and he went into the synagogue and there was a guy there with a withered hand and they said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus says... You know, if a sheep falls into a ditch, you'd pick it out, you'd do the good thing, the right thing, you help the needy out. So he tells this wicked man, uh, this man with a withered hand, to stretch out his hand, which would have been impossible, but when Jesus gives the word, the command, he also gives the enablement. And the guy does so, and it's miraculously healed and restored to the whole. And then the, the verse 14 says, the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill him, destroy him. They'd already made the decision that he's got to go, the plotting is about how are we going to do this together. They believe the exact opposite of who Jesus was, even to the point, in the paragraph we jumped over, of accusing him of being satanically uh, linked up, satanically empowered or inspired. So in the midst of all of this mounting antagonism, uh, Matthew particularly wants to take this opportunity to draw attention to the fact that Jesus really is the Messiah. Even though... Chapters 11 and 12, there's a lot of rejection, there's a lot of opposition. Uh, Matthew is trying to point out, uh, but that was the response of Israel, uh, but he is the promised one, as he is going to refer to here. There are many titles, of course, of Jesus uh, in the Scriptures, something like over about 150 of them, a whole variety of them, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Son of Man, and on and on and on. And in this particular paragraph, where Matthew quotes Isaiah... Isaiah calls Jesus the Lord's servant, servant of the Lord, four times in four significant paragraphs in the book of Isaiah and this is just the first of them out of Isaiah 42. Jesus in fact did come to serve the Father and to serve people in his Father's name. This is a significant paragraph because it informs us and answers a question for us. Have you ever been curious about, you know when Jesus healed people, he would say to them, don't heals a guy of leprosy and it's like, don't tell anybody. Heals a guy of blindness and make sure you don't tell anybody. The guy with the leprosy, he would say, don't tell anybody, go show yourself to the priests and so on. Uh, it'd be a pretty hard thing to do, wouldn't it? Not tell anybody. What happened to you? Oh, God, sorry. 
Um, but verse 15 tells us, Jesus, aware of this, aware of what? Aware of the Pharisees' rejection, their plot to want to destroy and remove him. Jesus, aware of that, his response? It's not antagonism, it's not to stand his ground and fight. Though he certainly could have. Matthew tells us later on in his Gospel, in chapter 26, that he could have summoned, uh, prayed to his father, and the father would have sent 12 legions of angels. If Jesus wanted to, he could take them on. That's not the issue. There's something else going on here. And if you've ever asked the question, why did Jesus say to people, don't tell anyone? What's behind that? Well, this passage tells us uh, the main reason, the biblical strong reason. There are other suggestions which I'll share with you um, as we come to it. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place voluntarily. He wasn't pushed out. He just didn't come to assert himself. He came to seek and to serve. He came to seek the lost and to serve God and God's people. So certainly until the end of the last week of Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry is like a whole series. There's a pattern to the way that he works. He goes to a place, he preaches, he teaches, he heals people, and people respond by accepting him, and other people respond by rejecting him, and then he just moves on. And he teaches, and he preaches, and he heals, and some people accept him, and some people reject him, and he moves on. And just as you move through the Gospels, those cycles become shorter and faster because the opposition is rising and the antagonism is becoming a little bit more intense. And so here we have Jesus doing what is his typical pattern of cycling through in, this, uh, in, in his ministry cycle. <clears throat> All, however, the large crowd that followed him, he healed everybody. Bearing in mind, he didn't come to heal, he came to save. But such is the compassionate heart of the Lord Jesus and of God our Heavenly Father that he wants to minister to affliction and to hurting, suffering people. The reason Jesus wasn't here primarily to heal was because healing, doesn't matter what it is, being raised from the dead, being healed of leprosy or blindness or whatever, it's temporary. It's only for this life. Jesus came to die for our sins, to heal us of our sins, if you like, to pay our debt. And that spiritual healing is eternal in its consequences, not temporal. So that was the priority of the Lord Jesus, but nonetheless, he still had a ministry of healing. And to those whom he did heal, he particularly said to them, he warned them not to tell others about him. As I've already said to the leper, he said, don't tell anyone and go to the priest. And even part of that <coughs> is God's strategy if you were a priest in the temple and the te a leper came to you and said, listen, I had leprosy and I've now been healed, who by? Uh, by Jesus. Uh, could you check me out? And he checks you out and you get the clean bill of health and off you go. And that gets repeated and repeated and repeated. So in the book of Acts, when you get to chapter 6, it says that the gospel is preached and many people came to believe and many priests also because they had this influence of this uh, repeated information of the consistency of Jesus of touching lives. It would certainly be hard, as I said, for people, to, it'd be hard not to talk about Jesus. And they're, in fact, in some places where it says, uh, the Gospels tell us that don't tell anyone, and they go out immediately and start telling people. They disobey. They do the exact opposite of what Jesus wanted them to do. Well, why did Jesus say that? He warned them not to tell others about him. Here are some suggestions. 
Number one, I don't think this is a good idea, a good one. Um, Jesus wanted to maintain the surprise element so that there would be a a big impact when he performed another miracle. Um, Some suggest that. Some suggested um, he didn't perform them uh, to become famous or or to become popular because that's not his reason. He didn't come here to gather public support and influence and to get a, a large gathering, a large following. He certainly had compassion for people's physical afflictions, but his primary work, as I said, was to save souls, not body. So the reason he said that was that in one, one of the Gospels, it says in one place that he could no longer go into some places because the word had gone ahead of him. It made him too busy. He was being distracted from the very reason that he came. And one of the main reasons he came was to teach. It was not the time of his exaltation. It was the time of his humiliation. It's not his time yet, that's true. A significant reason, and this is the one that I have often thought, is uh, he often withdrew from the overzealous crowds. Don't tell anybody, because you've got the wrong expectation of what a Messiah is. And so I don't want to fuel that. You guys think the Messiah is here to be a political um, leader and a military deliverer and to throw the Romans out and to set up the kingdom and deliver Israel and... That's your expectations of what the Messiah would do. And in fact, that attitude was still present even in some of the 12, in some of the uh, early apostles. Because when you get to Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead, he's about to ascend into heaven. Uh, Jesus is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They ask him, verse 6. And Jesus says, don't concern yourself about the times that the Father has set by his own authority. Go be my witnesses, be the people I've trained you to be. Um, So that was certainly, I think, a valid reason. But then it dawned on me, this week, (laughs) for all these years, I had that question. And this week, there's the answer on the screen. He warned them not to tell anyone others about him. Next verse. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Why did Jesus say, don't tell anybody? Because that's what was predicted that he would do. That he would not be one who was loud and boisterous, that he would be a servant who would come to serve. And so we, that's why Matthew quotes this very passage, this paragraph. Um, here is a, a, a wonderful paragraph as you meditate upon it, as you pull it apart and probe a little bit of it, you'll find that the Messiah, as predicted by Isaiah 42, the passage that Matthew is going to quote, he is commended by the Father, he is commissioned by the Holy Spirit, he communicates the Father's message, he's committed to the meek and to comforting those who are struggling, the weak, and that he would consummate the victory over sin and Satan. He would bring justice on earth. He would be victorious. The passage in Isaiah depending how you divide it up, but I found four things that the the Messiah, God's servant, would do. Four tasks. So let's have a quick look at those. There are two in this verse. Firstly, he came to serve. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Firstly, He came to serve. He is my servant. In fact, he's the perfect servant. 
Somebody has calculated how many people are alive on the planet at the moment. It's about, what, seven, eight billion, something like that. Somebody has calculated that over the course of human history, there's been something like about 100, 105 billion people lived on the planet. And there's only been one who has lived perfectly, and only one of them has been this servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is unique. He is the one that God chose for a specific purpose and task. He is God's supreme servant, chosen to redeem the world. And that choosing and calling is irrevocable. It's not something that the Father makes the Son do. No, it's a, there's an internal harmony in the Trinity between the Father's Son and the Spirit. And it's what one thinks the others agree with and so on. There's one united will. They are three distinct persons, but they are one united divine being. It's beyond us. We can't explain it. We can only declare it as God has revealed it to us. He is the one whom they unitedly agreed would come, the chosen servant, Jesus, God the Son. Um, and the Father said, declares here, that he is the one that I love, in whom I delight. They're the very words that Jesus received at his baptism. Uh, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The transfiguration, same voice from heaven the father this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased listen to him matthew chapter 17 and it's on him that the father says i'll put my spirit which is what happened at jesus's baptism the dove the spirit in the form of a dove came upon the lord jesus the lord jesus was conceived by the holy spirit and john chapter 3 in fact tells us that jesus received uh, the anointing of the spirit without limit this is not in his divine person, if we can separate them, but in his humanity. That he was equipped and empowered by God's spirit to do the ministry that he was called and apportioned to be. And in fact, when Jesus begins his ministry, he stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth, reads another passage in Isaiah, and, is, and he says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach, to heal, to set the captives free to open the eyes of the blind, to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he sits down, and when they're looking at him, because that's what happened in those days, you would sit down to teach. So when he sat down, they're looking and listening, and he says, that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing today. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Exactly what God had predicted would happen. Just as an aside, let me go on to some of these the remarkable evidence that prophecy gives us, uh, verifying that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, because he came to fulfil God's word, uh, exactly. He came to do what God said he was going to do. There's something over 300 prophecies of the Lord Jesus, 330 or something like that. There's a man by the name of Peter Stoner who wrote a book, I think it's called Science Speaks. He's a mathematician and I'm not. But in it, he gives these illustrations to try and get your mind around the improbability of these things coming to pass and he says peter skint stoner says that if you took eight just eight of the whatever it is the number of prophecies 330 300 something um of the prophecies of jesus just took eight of them the chances of that those eight prophecies being fulfilled by one person is one to the power of 10 to the 17th now, that doesn't communicate, does it? That's a number that we go, what? Well, somebody else has illustrated it like this, that you take 
they said the state of Texas. Well, that's about the size of the state of New South Wales. It's a little bit smaller than Queensland. But if you covered, took a uh, $1 coin and you covered the whole state of New South Wales with a gold $1 coin, but it was um, 60 centimetres deep, two foot deep. That's a lot of coins. You take one of the coins and you put a cross on one of them and then you put it somewhere in the state of New South Wales and then you get a person and you blindfold them so they can't see what they're doing and they get one stab in the dark. They walk wherever they like to go in the wonderful state of New South Wales and they find the coin. That's the same probability. One in 10 to the power of 17. And he goes on and gives other mind-blowing numbers and figures and so on about the prophecies that Jesus, um, that were made of the Messiah to come and that are all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Here is a very quick sample of it. I know this is a side, but I'm just fascinated by it. He was uh, predicted that he would be preceded by a messenger, and Jesus was. What was his name? John the Baptist. It was prophesied that he would perform miracles, that he would teach in parables, that he would begin his ministry in the north, in Galilee, that he would heal the brokenhearted, that he would enter the temple suddenly. It was predicted that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, that he would be rejected by his people, Israel, that he would be betrayed by a close friend, that he would be silent when he was on a trial, in trial, and that he would be killed. All of these hundreds of prophecies of the Lord Jesus, and here is one of them. And it's referring exactly to this person, to the Lord Jesus. He is, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He came to serve, and that's exactly what he did. His work was to do the will of the Father, to fulfill all God's word, and to serve God and to serve people. The Lord Jesus was a servant, and he liked that title. He used it often of himself. This verse also contains the second thing the Messiah would do, that he would proclaim justice to the nations, that he would speak. To declare means that he is going to um, announce, that he's going to tell, that he's going to preach. And Jesus did a lot of preaching and a lot of teaching. Of all of the activities that he did, he healed, he prayed, um, he trained his disciples. The most important, the one he did most often, he spoke words, parables preached preached the gospel the phrase and he taught them appears 36 times in the gospels he taught crowds he taught in the synagogue he taught in the temple he taught in a house he taught on the road he taught on a mountain he taught in a boat everywhere he went he was speaking and he was teaching in three short years he had a far bigger influence upon this world than all of the other hundreds of years of orators and philosophers and everybody else he will speak he would proclaim justice righteousness to the nations, not just to Israel, to the nations, to the world. The Lord Jesus would proclaim righteousness and justice to the Gentiles. It's amazing. This is the one thing the Jews find very hard to accept, that the Messiah would come and he wasn't just for the Jewish people, that he was for the world. John 3:16. for God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son. But it's right there in the Old Testament, it's right there right in the beginning when God picks Abraham and he says to him, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God meant from the beginning that all of the nations would come into his forever family through the Messiah, not just his people. In fact, the Jews were supposed, the Israel people, 
descendants of Abraham, were supposed to be the missionaries to the nations. But they got that wrong and they just kept it all to themselves. And so eventually, God moves on from that plan and he opens it up to the Gentiles and he forms the church. Jesus came to proclaim justice to the nations. Let's move on. Verse 19. Uh, I <clears throat> depends how you put it together, but I put this one in verse 20 together. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not stuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. This one. He came to serve, he came to speak, came to strengthen. Now, this could go with speaking, but I put it here with strengthening. The passage says, the Messiah, when he comes, he will not quarrel. He won't harass. He won't annoy people. He will be opposed by people and he'll confront people, but he won't quarrel with people. And you never find the Lord Jesus quarrelling with people. And he won't cry out. He won't shout. He won't scream. He won't yell. Our next-door neighbour has a dog. Yeah, it's a stupid dog. And I don't know what sets it off, but every now and again, it's not just if a person walks past that it doesn't know, that would make sense. But every now and again, this creature of God barks. And it's annoying. Well, this is saying he will not be like that. He won't cry out. He won't be annoying in the way he speaks or teaches. He'll always respect people and he'll treat them with dignity. And the next phrase, and you won't hear his voice in the street. That other means, one, you won't hear him walking down the street singing and shouting out and making a parade of things and trying to draw attention to himself, you know, to get notice, to publicise his ministry. It could mean that. And it could also mean... I also have a neighbour, a different neighbour to the one with the dog. I can hear their voice. I can hear her voice especially in the morning when she shouts at the kids. And she's not a follower of the Lord Jesus, so she uses Australian language. I can hear her voice in the street. I can hear her voice across the street. Well, that's what it means. You won't hear Jesus' voice. If he's in a house, he's not going to be speaking so loud that you'll hear his voice outside. He's not going to have a temper tantrum and he's not going to yell or anything else. And that's why Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. Let God do his thing. This is beautiful. I love this verse. A bruised reed he will not break. What's a reed? It's a, a plant that grows in the marshes and beside the rivers and so on. You could take them and you could, uh, the shepherds would take them, they could um, cut little holes in them and make a flute and they could make music, play it to the sheep. Um, you could also use it to make pens and you could also use it to make mats, either to sleep on or to put at your front door. But if it was bruised, if it became soft or cracked, it was useless. People just discarded it, threw it away. Well, this is saying a bruised reed, a reed that has been bent, it's snapped over, it's weak, Uh, A bruised reed, he's not going to break off and throw away. A smouldering wick, he will not snuff out. A smouldering wick is like on a candle, you know, the little wick thing? Well, in Jesus' day, that wick, that bit of flax, they would put in a container with oil in it and they would light it. And as it burnt down, sucked up the oil, and as it burnt down, when it burnt down to a stub, then it would start to smoulder. It would just smoke, but it wouldn't give off light. It would just give off 
either a pungent odour or whatever else, and people would just grab it and throw it away and put another one in. But this is saying, predicting the Messiah won't be like that. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. It's picture language to say he's going to deal with people very gently. The broken, the tired, the weary, the burnt out, the burdened. Those that are discarded by others, those that nobody else cares about, he will restore. He will rekindle or strengthen them, fan them back into flame. Jesus will not toss you away. He will draw you near. Come to me, he says. I like the analogy that Jesus is a person who loves to restore old junk. He doesn't buy a new car, he builds an old car and he restores it, fixes it up. That's what he does with people. Um, And the end of that, verse 20, in into 21, says the fourth one. He came to speak, serve, he came to speak, he came to strengthen, he came to save. He will have that ministry operating that way till he has brought righteousness and justice through to victory. He will win out. He will be victorious eventually. He's destined to be victorious. And it's in his name that the nations, the Gentiles, will put their hope, will put their trust. Fenny Crosby wrote a hymn. Let me quote part of the words of it. It's beautiful, I think. uh, This is from Rescue the Perishing, her hymn. Deep in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, chords that were broken will vibrate once more. I think that's beautiful. Deep in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, chords that were broken will vibrate once more. Jesus is the Messiah who came. Why did he tell people, don't tell anybody? Because that's exactly how the prophet said that how he would behave. He came to serve, he came to speak, he came to strengthen, and he came to save. While all this is going on, while Jesus is speaking, let me rush ahead. If that was Jesus in his ministry, then Jesus is, this is Jesus and his mother, and his new family. While Jesus was still talking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Plural, brothers. We know that he had four brothers and we have their names and we know he had uh, sisters, plural, at least two because it's also sisters and they would have been obviously the children of Joseph and Mary, so half-brothers to Jesus. They came, Mary and the brothers, Um, Joseph probably at this stage has already passed away and their desire is they want to speak to him he's inside a crowded house teaching as he often was and someone passes a message to him someone told him your mother and brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you let me just remind you of the story he replied to them who is my mother and who are my brothers it sounds hurtful doesn't it initially Well, that wouldn't be like the Lord Jesus. Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What's going on here? Well, why did they come? Why were they standing outside? They were not inside listening to him. They were on the outside. And they came because they'd heard rumours. 
They were becoming aware of the opposition, of his confrontation of the scribes and Pharisees and his, the kerfuffle in the synagogue in Nazareth and, um, and the accusations of what people, the leaders were saying about him, how they were plotting to destroy him and so on. It was growing in intensity and it was growing in seriousness. They came to rescue him. They came to tell him to chill out, just take some time out, just hit the pause button. Let's just back away from it. So let them calm down and forget about you and then you can start again. That's probably what is behind them. Mark gives us a slow uh, extra detail. He says that they came because they thought he was beside himself, that he'd lost the plot. And someone told him, your mother and your brothers are outside. Did they expect preferential treatment simply because they were blood family? We're here, stop teaching. Stop doing what you're doing and come speak to us. We're more important than what you're doing there. Was that their expectation? Perhaps. I'm sure Jesus understood their concern and their perspectives, but their concerns, their perspective was misguided. They didn't get it just yet of who he was and what he had come to do. So the Lord Jesus sees this, their visit, as an opportunity for him to teach the people who were listening to him about the need for a personal connection with him. You've got to have a relationship with Jesus to be in his family. So he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who is in my family? He's not renouncing his family. He still loved them and cared for them. And in fact, on the cross, he draws John's attention to his mother, Mary, and asks him to look after her. What Jesus is doing here is extending his family. And he points deliberately to his disciples and he said, here are my mother and brothers. Here is my family. If you want to be in my family you've got to be my disciple that's how you get in and then it's broad for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother my sister my mother whoever is universal but it's open to all but it's also conditional open to all but whoever does the will of my father in heaven that was always the priority of the lord jesus he was the servant of the lord doing god's will so if you believe and receive Jesus, you'll be included in his family. If you don't believe and receive him, then you'll be excluded from his family. Um, all of those who believe and only those who believe are spiritually related to me. That's Jesus' point. And belief, of course, is more than a simply a verbal declaration. There is a, a humbling of ourselves, a repenting and a receiving of him and forgiveness and a change of life that comes and he says in this verse whoever does the will of my father in heaven obedience doesn't get us in obedience demonstrates that we are in it's a manifestation that we are part of his family and the will of the father is number one to believe in his son whom he has sent and then number two once you have received him the will of the father for us is to listen to jesus to follow him and to obey him we don't have time to go into it tonight but this passage also alludes to the fact there is a tension that we experience in our walk with jesus but for jesus it's the priority of his spiritual family over his physical family and so for us there's got to be a balance between it's not just physical family first that's not the biblical position nor is it, uh, it's got to be the church first. 
It's got to be weighed in the balance. Sometimes it's going to be brothers and sisters in the church first. Other times it's going to be members in the family first. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.10 that we are to do good to everyone, especially to those who believe, especially to those of the household of faith. But Paul also says to Timothy, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and you don't look after your unbelieving family members, then you're worse than an unbeliever. If you don't look after your family members, you're worse than an unbeliever. So there's this balance that we have to go through. It's not a simple family first, church second. Sometimes, as it was in this instance, it was important for the spiritual family to go first. So Jesus came to serve, he came to speak, came to strengthen, came to save. He can do all of that for you. He can do any one of those for you. Which one of those is it that you need from him? Do you need to join his forever family? Do you need to get related to him to be his brother, his sister, part of his forever family? Why don't we do that now? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that it's possible for us to be reconciled, to be forgiven, to be refreshed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to serve and we are the beneficiaries of it. Thank you that you came to speak. Lord, speak truth to us. Teach us what we need to know about yourself and about your will for our lives. Lord, strengthen us. For those of us who are bruised or smouldering, who are struggling, broken, wounded, minister your grace to us, Lord. Fill our empty souls and give us direction and empower us in service. And Lord, save, perhaps even here tonight, save those who call out to you. Save those who desire to be part of your forever family. Convict our hearts, Lord, of sin. Draw us to yourself. And may your will and your ways be done in each of our lives. We pray in your name. Amen.